Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. This is Tim Staples of Catholic Answers. I'm excited to let you know that I also teach high school apologetics for homeschoolconnections.com, an online Catholic curriculum provider. There are also recorded independent learning courses at homeschoolconnections.com. Whether you take apologetics with me, literature with Joseph Pierce, or philosophy with Bill Donahue, or any of the other 400-plus courses with homeschoolconnections.com, it's a great way to get Catholic learning for your family. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Know the Faith, Defend the Faith. My name is William Hemsworth. It's great to be with you all again for today's episode. Pleased to welcome back our guest, Troy Guy. Troy is a, he's an author, an apologist, um, founder of Discover His Church Media. So discoverhischurch.com is the website. Uh, Troy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, William. How are you doing? So great to be with you and great to be with your guest. Oh, Troy, it's great to have you back. Um, really excited to talk to you again. I think this is, I, was, I went back and looked, I think this is your, the third time on the program. So welcome back. Always great to have you. Always great to be with you. And thank you for all you're doing too. You're doing a great job, William. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That I appreciate that, appreciate that very much. Um, thank you. Our topic today, it's one that's near and dear to our hearts. Um, very important. The Eucharist, the source and summit of our faith. Um, so I guess before we get into the Eucharist, Troy, what's been going on with you lately in your ministry? Well, William, we have uh, been busy. Uh, we are getting ready to release our second uh, book, and so we are very excited about that. Uh, we've been uh, traveling a little bit, doing, finally, we're back doing in-person uh, talks again, uh, some uh, on the Eucharist, uh, a lot of them, uh, ones coming up on our uh, Blessed Virgin Mary, our mother, so we're excited about that, and um, we're just staying busy with family. Uh, as you know, I've got four kids that keep me busy, and it uh, seems like 400, so <laughs> we're, we're doing great. Thank you. Great. Well, congratulations on the book. When, when's that book, when's that book going to be released? Well, we're looking at uh, the end of August is what I'm told. And so uh, we'll be looking forward to that. But it's, uh, it's a book, William, on the uh, secular attack of our, on our Catholic faith, our Catholic families, uh, our Catholic schools, and uh, what we can do about it as faithful Catholics. And so it seems like such a timely thing. And yes. uh, we've had so many friends uh, join with us and, and prayer about this book. And so it's been a long time coming and the, the time seems like it's, uh, it's right. Timely indeed. I look forward to checking the book out. That's I'm really excited to check it out. So congratulations on that. So, so Troy, the Eucharist, what, there seems to be some confusion in the media on what we believe as Catholics, what the Eucharist is. Can you tell us what the Eucharist, what we believe as Catholics about the Eucharist? Absolutely. So William, um, you know, I, I guess I would start there is uh, I was a Baptist for 25 years and very anti-Catholic and I had this notion that uh, Catholics worship this uh, fake Christ uh, that was uh, really only meant 
to be a symbol. You know, when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood uh, in the Gospels, he was really referring to uh, the things he did for us on Calvary, uh, but it was in no way his actual flesh, his actual literal body, blood, soul, and divinity. So as Catholics, we believe, and the church has always believed and taught for 2,000 years, uh, that Jesus Christ is truly present body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine. In other words, the Eucharist uh, is not a symbol of Christ, but literally is Christ, is Jesus. And so uh, that's what we as Catholics believe, and that's what the, the church has always taught. And uh, it was the number one thing that caused my conversion from being a crazy anti-Catholic to being a committed uh, a Catholic Christian. And, uh, you know, William, as, as we begin here, uh, one of the, uh, the things that, that Our Lady of Fatima said uh, in 1920, I believe it was to the Blessed Jacinta Marta, was that if men knew what eternity is, they would do everything to change their life. And when I found out that the Eucharist was, in fact, the body and blood of Jesus, uh, I know it certainly changed my life. Uh, uh, and it just really radically changed uh, who I am as a Christian and how I see Christ coming to us each and every day. So you mentioned a moment ago how you, st- you know, you're you, obviously you were Baptist for 25 years. You had the anti-Catholic sentiment about the Eucharist. What was it about the Eucharist that started um, cracking your foundation, if you will? Well, there's two options. If Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, this is my body and this is my blood, and he only meant it figuratively, then as a Baptist, I was in pretty good shape. But if these Catholics, you know, if these Catholics were right, um, and if this Catholic church and Orthodox church, by the way, Mm -hmm. uh, and other churches were right all the way back from the apostles, then I was in grave error and I knew it. Um, and so I wanted to go on a journey to find out what in the world was the truth. Was, was my Lord telling me that he came to me in a special way under the appearances of bread and wine? Or was he just saying, hey, it's just a symbol. And so it, it started me on a journey uh, to discover who Christ really is and, and, and who he is in, in the Eucharist. In fact, the Eucharist isn't, you know, something, but it truly is someone. And that is Jesus Christ. And Troy, I want to go back to scripture for a moment. You mentioned, you know, John 6, you know, this is, well, the you, the um, Last Supper discourse, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. Is there any other parts of scripture that discuss the Eucharist? Well, there is. Um, and when we begin talking about the Eucharist, you know, you think, well, the first place that you would, uh, you know, start uh, when you discuss the Eucharist is the New Testament. Right. Uh, but in fact, we can go back to the very beginning of time and scripture and look at the Old Testament and we see pictures of the Eucharist in the Old Testament. And I'd love to get to some of those, uh, hopefully in our time together. But then when you move to the New Testament, you see and there is absolutely no doubt that Christ was speaking of his literal flesh. And then you can go and look in the early church fathers as I did. And and again, it leaves you no doubt that the early church and early Christians believed that it was the literal body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And then in my own life, just being an adoration, I've become a witness 
to what Christ has done for me, not only spiritually in the day I, quote, gave my life to him, and, and that's a Protestant term, uh, but even now today, when I go to adoration, I know that my Lord is there. Um, but, but you know, we, I, I just if we have time, I'd like to go back to an example that really started queuing me off. And it goes back to a man uh, by the name of Father John Brenner. Uh, maybe you've heard of him, but uh, Father Brenner uh, was ordained a priest in 1955. And uh, I remember reading his account and was just really awed by it because you see, on the night of, of uh, December of 1957, uh, he was summoned to come give a somebody that was dying their last rites. And, you know, they came and they knocked on his door whenever he was, you know, it was almost midnight, very late at night. And uh, they said, uh, Father Brenner, Brother, Brother Brenner, come quickly, come quickly. You know, this man's dying. Come give him his last rites. And uh, so, of course, Father Brenner, anxious, you know, he grabbed the oil and he grabbed the host. And uh, he began running through the fields at night by himself just to make sure that he got to this man that was dying, only to end up murdered. He oh. was, uh, uh, his uh, surplice of Father Brenner was, he was wearing, has been found, it's bloody, it's saturated with blood. He, uh, Father Brenner was stabbed 32 times, William, 32 times. Oh. His neck was gashed. Footprints were on his body. But one thing that stuck out, they found that Father Brenner, his body, was found holding the Eucharist close to his heart. And he did not dare let the Eucharist fall. There was something about the Eucharist that Father Brenner died for that night, and he would not let it leave his heart he let, you know, when they found his body, it was right up to his chest, still clinging to the Eucharist. And why is that, William? And I believe it's precisely because he believed what the Catholic Church, again, has always taught, that Jesus is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine. And, and you know, William, it's also really telling that today, one person that enters the church desiring the Eucharist for every one person six people leave the church. And I believe it's because we have a lot of Christians that have been catechized. You know, they, they know the right answer. They've sat through the classes. Uh, they've been sacramental. You know, they, they, they've had their baptism, uh, confirmation. So they've been catechized and sacramentalized, but we, we haven't seen them evangelized. In other words, they haven't had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And so this idea of the Eucharist being literally Jesus Christ is foreign to so many uh, in the in the church. Um, so yeah, I, I would just go back to my my journey as a Baptist. You know, being a uh, a Baptist, born again, Bible believing Christian, and and by the way, William, I still love going, uh, hanging out with my friends who are are Baptist uh, ministers. Yes. Uh, just I was just recently hanging out with some Baptist ministers, Presbyterian ministers, and uh, very much love what they've taught me and instilled in me. But the fact of the matter is that when I was a Protestant, I kind of looked at church as a good sermon, you know, or a good church service if my pastor, you know, brought down a good sermon. And, uh, you know, my, my church was pastor-centered, sermon-centered. Uh, we had good children's ministry. We had a good worship service. But it was kind of a Baptist Bible study that made me Catholic because as we began looking at the early church, William, I discovered that the early church and the early Christians worshiped so much different than I did. 
And what they worshiped and what they centered around was, was Jesus Christ. In other words, the center of worship for them was the Holy Eucharist. It was really indeed the source and the summit of the Christian life. And so this idea of the real presence of Jesus uh, means that Jesus is truly with us. Mm -hmm. And so when we hear this is my body and this is my blood, it really is. And so I'm looking forward to diving into some of the, the biblical evidence for that. Let's go and do that. You mentioned a moment ago how we could start in the Old Testament. Is there any aha moments in the Old Testament for you in regard to the Eucharist? It was uh, it was a it was a stream of of, of uh, proofs, William, because uh, as you know, Saint Augustine came out with that famous quote. You know, the the New Testament's hidden in the old, and the right. old is is revealed in the new, and uh, and so that certainly was true in my life because. Uh, as a Baptist, I begin seeing, and of course, I didn't do this in a vacuum. It was through scholarly works of, you know, people like Scott Hahn and John Bergsma and uh, Jimmy Aiken and Catholic Answers and all these great um, Bible studies and apologetics ministries that are out there that kind of helped me see this. But, but I began to see these pictures of the Eucharist that were in the Old Testament. And specifically, I'm referring to the Passover in Exodus 12 the manna in Exodus 16, and then even just general cities like the, the, the city of Bethlehem, you know? And so, so the question is, how do these pictures uh, give us a, an image of the Eucharist in the Old Testament? Well, if you look at the first example, like, like the Passover, um, I think it's well known, but the Israelites uh, were enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, of course, didn't listen to Moses. So what does God do? He sends these plagues, and it was on the 10th plague that the angel of death would pass through Egypt, and he, on that night, would kill all of the firstborn. Unless, William, they did this one thing, this one sacred ritual, and of course we know this, they would, right. they, would, they would take an unblemished male lamb with no broken bones. And, and if we just stop right there, what in the New Testament is sinless, male lamb, no broken bones? Well, that's, of course, a reference to Jesus Christ. And so what would they do? They would take that lamb and sacrifice that lamb. Well, who in the New Testament was sacrificed? Nobody then sacrificed the perfect lamb, which, of course, was Jesus Christ also. But, but we, what, where it comes down to really seeing the Eucharist is what happened next. You see, in the Old Testament, they would apply this blood from that perfect sacrificed lamb to the doorpost and, and, and door lintels. And so that would provide salvation for them, and, and not only them, but, but for their family. And so if you think of in the New Testament now, what, you know, or who was sacrificed and gave their blood for our salvation, who hung on an old rugged cross, a piece of wood, who bled and died for us, well, of course, that's Jesus Christ. And so we begin seeing this picture of this Passover lamb. Now, the, the, the image isn't complete, though, right? Because as a Baptist, I said, aha, that is, that is perfect. I believe that. But you see, I was only having half the meal. I was only having half of the story. Because is the Jewish Passover meal complete at that point? And the answer is, no, it's not. You see, there's one more thing that they had to do in order to live. And if they didn't do this one more thing... Well, they would wake up in the morning, their firstborn would be dead, would be dead. And so that one thing 
they had to eat the flesh of the lamb. And so you couldn't just say, hey, I'll substitute, you know, a chicken or I'll substitute a symbol of a lamb. No, they had to eat and consume the flesh of the lamb. And so when we compare the Old Testament Passover, where, you know, they had to literally eat the Passover lamb in the New Testament, we would expect and see that we literally must consume the new Passover lamb for our salvation too. So it sets the beautiful stage uh, for the real presence uh, in, the, in the Passover, the new Passover. And so I guess I would like to go in the time we have to the manna real quick. Sure. You know, the manna, if you think about the Israelites, of course, they were freed from slavery. We know that. They weren't happy. They start complaining. And of course, you and I both know that we never do this, right? We never get freed from our... <laughs> from our slaveries, you know, in life. And uh, we never complain, of course not. Well, in fact, we know we do. But in this case, uh, they were unhappy. They start complaining, even though God did a miraculous thing in their life. And But what does God do as he always does? He miraculously feeds them. And what happens next is a bread, a miraculous bread comes from heaven. And thank, uh, St. Paul calls this manna, you know, a, a supernatural food. And so this manna comes from heaven. Well, where does the Eucharist come from? It also comes from heaven. What did the manna taste like? You know, the, the Bible says that this, this manna tastes like wafers made of honey. And I think this is so cool, William, because on our journey to heaven, we're in a, a journey uh, to our promised land. And we are expecting that heaven will be like it's been described as milk and honey. And so when we think of things of wafers made with honey on the way to the promised land, uh, we begin seeing that this manna is a picture of the Eucharist for us. Um, you know, the manna was, uh, of course, temporary. Uh, and, and so it is with uh, the uh, Eucharist. Until we reach the promised land, we will be fed with manna, which, of course, is Christ. And and I could go on and on, but, you know, the manna was also a mystery to the Israelites. In fact, that they looked at it and said, manna, what is it? And that, that's what manna means. What is it? Right. And so today, William, people are asking, what is the Eucharist? Just like they did the manna. And so if you begin putting all this together, you can look, for example, Bethlehem. And, and I know you know this well, too, but... Right. Bethlehem is Beth means house and Laham means bread. And so you have the house of bread. And so where does Mary go? You know, she goes to the house of bread to deliver the bread of life. And Amen. certainly we know that that bread of life is not a symbol. So we see the Eucharist foreshadowed in the Old Testament in the Passover meal. And why? Because the Passover meal uh, the Last Supper takes place in the context of the Jewish Passover. So we see a very real flesh there. It wasn't symbolic. We see the manna uh, being a picture of the Eucharist. It wasn't symbolic. It was the real flesh. Uh, in Bethlehem, you know, Mary didn't deliver a symbol of Christ, but the real flesh of Christ. And so when you when you put all these together, going back to your question, and again, there's so many others, Michelle's Dick, but we could go on and on. But you begin seeing that God didn't start us with the Eucharist in the New Testament. He begins showing us pictures of it in the Old Testament. And so that began to draw me to the, to the real presence of Christ. So I wanted to ask you a question. You mentioned the Passover, you know, how the unblemished lamb, you couldn't break the bones of the lamb. 
then you go to Jesus hanging on the cross and the Roman soldiers are going around breaking the legs of the people hanging on the cross. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So they didn't have to break his legs. Right. Right. Did that realization um, hit you at all when you were investigating the Eucharist? It did. It did. Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, and that was yet another point that, that brought me home to the reality of the real presence. Uh, they did not break the bones of our Lord. Um, and such a such a beautiful example. And, you know, there's also, uh, of course, when they pierced him in the side, uh, you know, there's a place in Revelation that says uh, when they looked up, they saw him pierced as though from the beginning of time. And so uh, this sacrificial lamb, again, not a symbol. And I kind of want to dwell on that again. Sure. These are not symbols of Christ. And so as a Baptist, my theology was getting, you know, just completely shredded. Uh, because if I look back, they should be symbols of Christ. But in fact, they're not symbols of Christ. They literally are the flesh of our Lord. Um, so, yeah, uh, absolutely. Good, good point, William. Yeah, I just remember reading that, and when I, it finally dawned on me, and it's like, like just whoa, just that's all I could say to it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, that's right. So we covered the. Let's go to the early church for a moment. You said you started reading the early church fathers and how they worshipped and how the Eucharist was at the center. What was there any particular church father that hit you particularly hard with their beliefs on the Eucharist when you were investigating? Um, I think that the one that stuck out to me most about the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist is all of them. It's all, all right. <laughs> I hope that narrows it down. Um, well, let me, let me uh, say this about that. The early church fathers were instrumental in helping me become Catholic. You see, if you're a Baptist listening to us today, don't read the church fathers because they are going to bring you right to the doors of the Catholic church as they did me. And of course, I'm kidding when I say that. Please read the church fathers. Uh, but that's the quickest way to become Catholic, I believe. You see, because when you read the church fathers, you see how the real presence of Jesus Christ was believed by all Christians at all places at all times for 1,500 plus years. Uh, and when they did question or they did walk away from it, it was considered heretical. And so all Christians believed it. And I really want to dwell on this, William, because when we say the early church, why does it matter? You know, to Protestants and, and other non-Catholics, uh, who cares about the early church? You know, it's they're certainly not inspired writers, you know, in terms of their writings. Only the Bible is the inspired written word of God. I mean, why would I care, right? Well, when we think of the early church fathers, we're talking 8030 to about 8700, 800, right in there right. in general. Now, why would the early church fathers matter? Why would I care? Well, here's why. Because if you consider St. Irenaeus, well, he was a disciple of St. Polycarp. And St. Polycarp was a disciple of St. John. And St. John was a disciple of our Lord. So if you want to go back and see what the early church taught and what was happening after the times of the New Testament, you will see that these early church fathers believed in the real presence of Christ. And what better way to, to know what the early church is and taught than go back to their early church writings themselves. And so let's think about those. When I said uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch, for example, he was around, say, 110 AD. Right. He said this, and I want to make sure I quote this. I've actually pulled these up so we could really talk about this. He said, here's St. Ignatius now, 110 AD. They, who's they? 
He's talking about the heretics. He said that they abstain from the Eucharist and prayer because they do not believe that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. So here I am looking at St. Ignatius. And by the way, St. Ignatius, I mean, his life is just such a martyrdom for Christ. I mean, if you're going to look at anybody and say, hey, what did they believe and how were they acting? This man would be one of them. Um, And he says, look, the Eucharist is the flesh. And to not believe that is heretical. Uh, you go. You can go and look at Cyril of Jerusalem, another one of my favorite. He says that with the prayer complete, what prayer is he talking about? He's talking about the same prayer that's said in Mass throughout the world in the Holy Catholic Church. He says the prayer complete, the bread becomes the body of Christ, and the wine becomes the blood of Christ. And so he, he mentions no words. He says nothing about symbols, nothing about figurative language. He says it becomes the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. This is a man living in, in the fourth century, in the fourth century, saying the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And just to fast forward, look at, a, you know, I was a Protestant. I knew about uh, St. Augustine of Hippo. Mm-hmm. This is in 350, 430 AD. He says, the bread which you see on the altar... He says, having been sanctified by the word of God. See, there's that prayer thing again, what every Catholic is familiar with. Sanctified by the word of God is the body of Christ. And then he continues, what is in that chalice? Having been sanctified by the word of God. See, there's that prayer again. Is the blood of Christ. So again, not symbol, not figure, but really the blood of our Lord and really the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. So so whenever you go back to the question, uh, all the early church fathers, just literally almost every one of them believed in the real presence of Christ. So the question I ask myself is, why don't I as a Protestant today? And so I knew I was in deep trouble and had to come home to the Christ, to the church that Christ established. Well, amen. I know for, for, my, for myself, when I entered uh, Baptist seminary, I decided I was going to study the early church to prove they weren't Catholic. And one of the one of the quotations I read was the first one you read from Saint Ignatius of Antioch, and it was like the Holy Spirit hit me with a frying pan almost right away. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so you, know, you, oh, you talked about. Uh, oh, sorry. I, I think this is delay. So one thing that's really interesting, William, too, I think is uh, so. You know, we talk about the early church. So we see in the Old Testament, yep, real presence is being uh, projected. Uh, we see. Uh, early pictures and images and foreshadowings and uh, of the uh, of the Eucharist, the real presence. Uh, then we see, you know, we just talked about the uh, church fathers, which we could go on. Uh, the whole interview could take up the, the church fathers on the on the Eucharist, and then and, and then you can go back to the New Testament. But just to, just for a minute, I, I want to think about Saint Paul. Now, Saint Paul uh, is a uh, I say a Protestant theology student. Uh, I love the writings of Saint Paul. Still do. Um, but as Protestants, we kind of looked at St. Paul as our guide and, you know, that he was really the, 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 the I guess, the foremost theologian that, right. that we would look at. And in First in Corinthians uh, 10, 11, 12 in there, he says some things that really hit me hard. And you talk about a frying pan. Oh, this was definitely a skillet. Um, he says this. He says, um, I'm looking this up. He says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of our Lord. Now, here's a question, William. How can we be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of our Lord, as Paul says, if the body and the blood of our Lord are not there? Right, exactly. Wow. I mean, that one really hit me. And, and just real quick, if you if you look at his next sentence or two, he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so I began asking myself, okay, now wait a minute. If I'm not discerning the body of our Lord, it's telling, Paul's telling me in no uncertain terms, that I could be putting judgment on myself. So if I know deep down that this is my Lord and I don't believe it, I'm, I'm inviting judgment into my life. And so the only option I had is to take it at what Paul said. And again, we can't bring judgment on ourselves, and because we don't discern the body if the body is not there in the first place. So Troy, when you're, when you're discovering all this about the Eucharist, I guess, what was going through your mind? Uh, how soon can I get into the Catholic Church? And I mean that. I, okay. I, because, you know, the Lord, I mean, he's, you know, Jesus said, you know, and I'll be with you always to the end of time. And, you know, I used to take that as, well, spiritually he's with me. And that's true. Uh, and, you know, he was, he was with us um, in all kinds of ways. But he's especially with us in the Eucharist. And so he left us nothing but himself which is all we need and so when he gave it gave us himself in the eucharist um i knew that i had to become catholic and start receiving the lord in a very worthy way uh, you know we have these altar calls and and it's you know as a protestant we say well we we receive the lord and you know we walk up and have to make that one-time decision but you see as a catholic every time i take communion i make a decision for jesus christ yeah Every time I walk up there, I not only receive him spiritually, I receive him physically, just like the early Christians have done for 2,000 years. Yeah, amen. Troy, do you have time for maybe a couple objections that we sometimes hear about the Eucharist? Absolutely. Let's go. All right. <laughs> so I guess one that I used to hear a lot and even give a lot was our Lord said that he was a door, a vine. It means he was speaking metaphorically. What makes the Eucharist so different from those, those two metaphors? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, if we go back and look at John chapter six, um, he said, uh, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Uh, the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so let's examine that. Now, when he said he's the hinge of the, the, the gate and he's the door and all that, those, those disciples understood him to be, to be speaking symbolic. And so they didn't revolt. They just kind of said, yep, he's talking symbolically. But let's go back and apply that now to, to John chapter 6 and ask the question, did the disciples believe that Jesus in John chapter 6 was speaking symbolically? I mean, let's, let's turn to the, the written word of God. Well, when he said this is my flesh, what happened? The Jews began to argue sharply. In fact, scripture says the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves and said, wait a minute, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So clearly they understood him to be talking not symbolically, but literally. And what happens? Does Jesus correct them? Well, let's see. In John chapter 6, if you keep reading, Jesus said, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. And this is powerful because here's why, William. According to Jesus, how do we have eternal life? How do we have eternal life? You see, he answers that for us because he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And, and, and the same thing could be said, according to Jesus, how do we abide in him? You know, that's important. How do we abide in our Lord? Is it Bible studies? Is it praying? Well, those are good. But Jesus tells us, he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And we know that that shift in Greek, very famous, phago and trogo, yeah. he originally is talking, well, you just sit down, you kind of eat, you kind of nominally eat food but then when they challenge him on this they say wait a minute how can you give us your your you know your flesh and blood again he changes that greek to trogo and now it's not just consume and eat it's crunch gnaw chew eat to the bone and so there's a drastic difference even in his own language he reaffirms what the disciples are believing and they're believing that he's talking uh not symbolically but literally and watch this william the bible says that many of his disciples said this saying is hard. Who can accept it? And our Lord says, does this shock you? You know, he's just kind of like, <laughs> wow, here you go. And that's what happens today. We say this truth. The Catholic Church teaches the truth, and it's shocking a lot of people. And still, even within the church, William, people are still shocked by it. But I would just argue that the next couple of sentences put the nail in, in the coffin for our case. Because the Bible says that as a result of this, Many of his disciples no longer followed him. You see, it was an apostasy over the real presence of Christ. And it's so interesting because Jesus takes the larger audience and says, hey, do you believe this? And then it causes you know, issues. Then he narrows it into his disciples. Then he narrows it down to the inner circle. And he says this, he says, do you also want to leave me? And I believe, William, he's asking us that today. You know, when there were the times get tough in the church, a bishop goes awry or a, a priest is, you know, caught doing some bad things, or maybe we have a document that we don't understand or something. We say, you know, we're just going to leave the church. But Peter, I believe, has an answer for us because he said, Lord, to whom can I go? And so we see that Jesus does not leave any room uh, for misinterpreting his words that he meant his literal body blood, soul, and divinity. And his is that's evidenced, William, by his disciples' uh, reaction. Yeah, Troy, and that word trogo that you talked about is very important. It's really key. And for anyone who wants to investigate it, just pull out your Strong's Concordance or whatever, and you'll see that it's in the Greek language, it's always used in a literal fashion. It's never used metaphorically or symbolically. So Jesus up the ante quite a bit. <laughs> yeah yeah you know he really did um but but i think you know we can look at the um we can look at all the evidence of the written uh, of the new testament and certainly we, we hopefully we can get to more of that but one of the things that really hit me is the realization of of, of what is a, a testament in the beginning you know we always like to get our evidence as a baptist and you know this well we like to get everything out of the new testament and uh, of course the old testament too and if it's not there well we can reject it if it is there well but what is the new testament you know, that this really hit me because 
the New Testament is also synonymous with the New Covenant before there was a written New Testament. And, and this one goes back, some of the church fathers and some of the early theologians talk about this too. Scott Hahn talks about this. A lot of his books talk about this, that when we talk about the New Testament, as a Baptist, we think it's the written pages. But what did it mean to the early Jewish uh, Christians in, in the New Testament era before there was a written New Testament? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, which is what we're just kind of in, uh, he talks about this chalice is the new covenant in my blood. And so when Jesus says, hey, do this in memory of me, this new covenant in my blood, he couldn't have been talking about a written New Testament. He was talking about the new covenant in his blood, which was not originally a book, but the Holy Eucharist. And we know that that's true because the New Testament wasn't even in the form we have it today for almost 400 years. And so if that's true, what were the center and summit of the early Christians if it wasn't the New Testament? The written New Testament was the New Covenant, which was the Holy Eucharist. And so when I started seeing that, I was like, wow, that's it. That's exactly right. And so that's why the, the, the Catholic Church today centers all of its worship around the person of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Great. So one more objection, and then I'll let you go for the day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the Old Testament forbids the drinking of blood. Why would Jesus tell us to drink his blood? Ah, uh, yes. Well, because blood is uh, has life, and life is blood and stuff. But we've got to remember, this is the resurrected Christ. And that is blood of dead animals that they were talking about in the Old Testament. We're not talking about drinking blood of animals. We're not talking of drinking blood of dead animals at all uh, or dead people. Our, our Lord is alive. And so we consume him body, blood, soul, and divinity from his resurrected body. And so it's not a, um, it's not a flesh from a dead animal, which is what they were referring to in the Old Testament, of course. Great. Well, Troy, thanks for your time today discussing the Eucharist. Uh, where can our listeners uh, reach out to you and learn more about your work? Uh, discoverhischurch.com, William, is our website, discoverhischurch.com. And uh, please reach out to us. And uh, we usually respond within about a day or two. And we're certainly continuing to take speaking requests around the world. And so we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any questions about the faith or books, we're we're able to, to reach out and help you as well. Great. Awesome. So again, check out the website, discoverischurch.com. And Troy, thanks again for coming on to talk about our Lord in the Eucharist. William, thank you again. God bless you. God bless your family. God bless all the listeners today and keep up the great work, William. Thank you. You too. God bless you and your family. God bless. Thank yeah. you.